Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything, a podcast that aims to shine a light on pricing. The cost of commodities, that's energy, food and so on, is such an important part of our lives. But how are those prices actually calculated? Why do they move up and down quite so much? And what's next? The Price of Everything is the first podcast dedicated purely to how pricing works. My name is Neil Bradford and I'm the founder and CEO of General Index, which is the world's first technology-led benchmark provider. Together with my colleagues from around the world and some special guests, we'll be taking you through how some of the world's most important commodities come to be priced and what the future looks like for them in the age of climate change and the energy transition. Dated Brent is the world's most widely recognized price for crude oil. But why Brent? How did an oil field off the coast of Scotland become so pivotal in global oil pricing? My colleague David Elwood explores the history. Brent is the world's most important oil benchmark, responsible for setting the price for over 70% of world exported oil. It is the most complex oil market in the world and the brand name of a benchmark that has reinvented itself many times since the 1980s. Well, hello, everyone. My name is David Elwood, and welcome to The Price of Everything. And this appraisal of Brent features in an excellent new book on oil pricing, which came out during the pandemic, uh, Trading and Price Discovery for Crude Oils, Growth and Development of International Oil Markets uh, by Dr. Adi Imshirovich. And I'm delighted to say uh, that he joins me here now on the po- podcast. Adi, welcome to The Price of Everything. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Well, just a quick introduction. Let me just tell my listeners a, a little bit about you. Uh, so Adi has over 30 years of experience in oil trading and academia. Uh, he's the former former global head of crude oil at Gazprom Marketing and Trading and taught economics at Surrey University in the UK for several years. And, and he's now a, a senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Now, why Brent? Why is Brent our the, the first topic in, in this new podcast series? Well, as, as Adi says in his book, it's, uh, it's, it's the world's most important oil price, perhaps also the most famous oil price. Uh, and maybe we'd even go as far as to say that it's the most important price full stop. Um, and the Brent crude brand is as ubiquitous with oil as Coca-Cola is to fizzy drinks. Uh, it's integral to the daily working of the oil industry. Um, and I guess it'll have been given a whole new audience in recent months as mainstream news outlets reported on the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, rising fuel prices and their contribution to surging inflation, uh, where the oil price quoted will most likely have been Brent. Um, Over the next couple of episodes, we're going to explore Brent and the history of oil pricing. Um, And I'm thrilled that Adi's agreed to to join us for our first episode, which we kind of loosely titled uh, The History of Oil Pricing and the Background to Brent. And Adi, if we were to try and wrap some dates around this, I think we're looking at uh, starting. I'm going going quite specific, 1859 and perhaps up to the 1870s, a little bit into the 80s. So we've got quite a, a breadth of of time to cover uh, with you. Um, 
But obviously, crude oil, we could go a lot further back. Records tell us that Noah used it to seal his ark. The Babylonians waterproofed their roofs with crude oil or with some form of oil. Um, and the Chinese have used it for skin, skin as a skin balm for years. And if we go to North America, well, the Native Americans, it was treatment there for frostbite. Um, but as I say, the story, the story of the price of oil, uh, and after all, it is the pricing trends we're interested in specifically on this podcast and the journey to De Brent's dominance. And it's one that spans the last 160 years. Um, and so today we're going to focus on the backstory and, and look at what happened before the, oil, the eyes of the oil world came to rest on the North Sea between the coasts of uh, Scotland and Norway. And Addy, so in your book, you trace the origins of the modern oil industry to a place more than 5,000 kilometers away from the North Sea, Oil Creek in Pennsylvania in the United States, where the, the world's first commercial oil well was drilled in 1859. So perhaps describe to us what the market was like there. How was, how was the emerging traded market around this sort of nascent industry? Well, it, what I found very interesting uh, was that the, the earlier days of the oil industry extremely competitive. Um, and, and the whole book is essentially looking, obviously, at the market. And as we all know, uh, Throughout the history of the oil industry, there were throughout the most of that period, uh, the oil market wasn't, you know, hasn't been particularly competitive for various reasons. So I went back to the early days of the oil markets just to find out what actually happened, what what went wrong, and why why the market suddenly uh, became uncompetitive from time to time. But it was really a, a fun journey, and uh, doing the research was really interesting according to the books written in, in, in sort of 1870s and 1880s. It was really interesting to read. Um, one of the, so I'll just kind of obviously visit some snippets uh, from that period. For example, the, the first market makers um, uh, for, 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 for oil and, and first people to discover the oil price were actually speculators that were called dump men. And dump basically refers to any kind of vessel where you could put oil into very often it was uh, when people run out of space they would just dig a hole and just just leave oil in the hole until they could use it so the dump men of the oil creek were actually the first market makers the first traders and and, and the important thing for uh, me and you and all of us who are in the oil markets is that price discovery uh, and they were the ones who were actually um, discovering the price of oil they 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 relied on better knowledge um, than, than others because they would they would travel around the region, they would talk to producers. And when there was excess uh, supply of oil, uh, especially for the smaller producers that did, that did not, not have agreement with refineries and so on, these smaller producers would very quickly run out of storage and they needed to offload the oil. And then the dump men would come in. And like today's market makers, if, 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 if you want to um, buy, for example, an oil derivative, you would probably call a bank or call a broker, and they would find somebody for you. They would basically give you a price. And, and they were extremely useful uh, at the time because then you would, you would know where the price of oil was and what price you could sell it at. And then later on, it gets uh, also even more interesting. Um, as, as the oil production increased, transportation was always a very, very big problem. So the, the big great breakthrough and invention where actually the gathering lines uh, that would take oil from the well to the railways where they were transported further on. 
So these gathering lines were, were, were actually quite useful because they would, you could actually deliver your oil. If you're a producer, you deliver oil into the gathering line and you get a receipt, a ticket, essentially. So um, those, those, um, <laughs> those uh, first uh, tickets were actually then because they would only uh, be a proof of ownership and had no price or anything on it. They would just say thousand barrels, you know, David gave to Adi into the gathering line could then be traded. So these tickets will actually be usually uh, be issued for thousand barrels at a time. Interestingly enough, uh, enough that's the, the root and the, probably the main reason why now the oil trades in thousand barrel lots still to this day. There would be for spot delivery, uh, regular so-called 10 day liver, delivery and future delivery, and they could be traded. So people started trading them uh, in, in the oil city. Um, um, they, they were trading basically next to the railway station. Um, uh, and, and they would just exchange these, uh, these certificates. And interestingly enough, some you know, speculation was quite a, a favorite pastime of many of the citizens of, 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 of the oil city, Titsville, and so on. And at the same time, uh, what's quite interesting was the development and commercialization of the telegraph. And as the first exchanges developed, and telegraph really helped that because you could actually be in various parts of the town, use telegraph to get the information and, and you know, have, uh, have prices, know prices exactly where they were. So that enabled then exchanges to be open in other, other places outside the oil city, in, in places like Bradford, Pittsburgh, New York, Philadelphia, and so on. So anyway, it was, it was a really fun time. Uh, there were a lot of Brokers, first brokers were established in 68. They were representing refineries. Uh, then they would, um, uh, the, the trade was quite uh, significant. The volumes, uh, David, were quite big. In fact, um, the, the, in the oil city, the, the exchange there um, in 18, I think it was summer 1882, they actually set up a clearinghouse. And very soon after setting up the clearinghouse, I think it was in October, the clearinghouse was set up. And then soon, uh, a month later, a record volume of oil traded these tickets, certificates of 18 million barrels. So these are big volumes. You know, this is a big size. You're talking about serious price discovery. But you're also describing a market that if, if, a, if a trader from, from nowadays was to be dropped back in history, there's lots of elements of this industry that they'd recognize. Well, absolutely. Like a, a lot of refineries are pretty, pretty much... Uh, in, in those days, all the oil was either traded on the exchanges or based on the exchange prices. So big refiners, like later on, we'll come to probably chat about Standard Oil, you know, the, the infamous monopoly. Uh, they, would, they were for years buying oil based on the exchange prices. They would take high, low and average them. And actually, if you think about it, that's how refineries buy oil now, pretty much. They would take your publication and... Uh, or any, any other assessment, and they would just average it out uh, on over a period of time, high lows or flows or something like that. Very, very similar. We might come, I'm sure we'll come to reflect later on perhaps why or the opportunity that the industry lost sort of giving up almost, well, perhaps 100 years of progress to, to go back. Um, but we'll come to that later. I just want to touch yeah. on one of the things you mentioned in the book is the first, I think it's important to draw here because we have a view we're looking forward to the evolution of the Brent price. And you have the first example 
around this time of a forward market being developed as well, which is sort of a, a key characteristic of the Brent price. That was, I think you describe a gentleman called uh, Jacob Vandergrift, a bit of a, a river captain and a pioneer oil producer. So this, this was an era of individuals as well. This was a time for people with ambition and with uh, skill and capability who were starting to put and influence the infrastructure of, of the industry. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and the obvious two characters um, that kind of filtered through and become the key characters, in fact, one of them is at least these days people talk about Rockefeller, but um, uh, Rockefeller uh, and his right man, uh, Henry Flagler, I think is uh, unjustly missed in a lot of these conversations. We all know about Rockefeller, but actually not many people know about Henry Flagler. Flagler who was um, instrumental in, in, in creation of, of Standard Oil. And actually later on, funnily enough, uh, Flagler was also um, pretty much founder of Florida. Uh, he founded um, uh, Florida East Coast Railway, uh, founded cities of Miami and Palm Beach. Uh, he had the money, ambitious, ambition, and, and was not shy uh, even from these huge projects. So um, how did, you know, the story of the two of them is quite interesting. and, and um, the other story that's not very often mentioned is that uh, we'll, we'll probably mention a few other uh, individuals later on, is, is, is the role that traders actually had. Because uh, Rockefeller and Henry Flagler were merchants. They were traders. They, they were not, you know, uh, geologists or uh, traditional oilmen. They were basically trading various commodities, including kerosene and then in the process realized there's a lot of money in kerosene and then started they started basically decided there was um they, they moved um into that business um and it was a thriving market and we should just perhaps we should just note for listeners so kerosene was the the main final product that was being produced for illumination oh yeah thank you for that david uh, essentially in those days illumination was the sort of killer app for the oil uh, oil industry so uh that what's that made it was very important, uh, of course. Lighting was very, very important. And in these those days, there were a lot of rural areas where you actually kerosene was quite easy to to transport and, and to when it and it burnt, it burnt burnt quite quite uh, much better than a lot of other oil that were used, like whale oil. And whale oil was also very expensive. Not to mention that what we currently see as a horrible, dirty oil industry effectively saved the whales. Um, uh, and, and <laughs> which is kind of very important to point out to a lot of people. So anyway, that was uh, interesting. The other interesting thing with them, uh, when we, before we move on, maybe to, uh, if you let me uh, talk a little bit about uh, Rockefeller and Standard Oil, was that um, it was the first oil shock. It was obviously not in 1973. The first oil shock happened in 1860, between 1860 and 62. And the um, oil prices were... Uh, trading in 1860s around $20 a barrel. It was quite expensive. It was a difficult process. But then as technology improved and people, it was basically an oil rush, uh, the prices uh, collapsed to, to about 10 cents uh, a barrel. So that's basically the first oil shock. Um, and it was, it was good for the oil industry because obviously made the kerosene a uh, cheap product. And technology, I think the other important thing is the Oil industry basically just borrowed technology from, from whiskey distillation, uh, including the barrels. The first barrels were whiskey barrels, as we all know. So, um, um, and technology was simple. So in, in his uh, autobiography, uh, Rockefeller says, 
and I used that for one of my chapters. Um, um, basically, it was so simple that the butcher baker and the candle maker were all getting involved into refining. So, so in 19, uh, sorry, in 1866, um, you've got Cleveland has uh, over 50 refineries. I don't even know where they could count it because all those refineries are very small. And even Rockefeller and Flagler's first refinery was about 500 barrels a, a day, and it was considered sizable. So we've be, we've been through a period here, right? So where there's a relatively free market where you've got standardization that's emerged, the first exchanges, and they're kind of dominated as the main price setting venues for about 20 years between yeah, good 20 like years, the yeah. 1870s to the to the mid 90 uh, to the mid 1890s. Now I'm kind of jumping a little bit ahead because sure. I guess the history of oil that you that you describe through your book is is if nothing not a catalogue of power grabs of governments and individuals and companies seeking to to wield control over pricing and perhaps the first and most audacious happened in January 1895 when one oil company you've mentioned their name Standard Oil issued a, a particular notice to the crew producers uh, perhaps you can tell us a bit about what was going on there what was so audacious about it by that time, um, Standard Oil obviously established itself. So let's start from the end. Uh, in, 19, in 1895, I keep saying 19, in 1895, Seep Agency, which was the sole agent for purchases of crude oil for Standard Oil, uh, it, basically they, they, they bought the company and they, 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 they served all the interests of Standard Oil. One day came out, it was uh, in January uh, that year, Nine, eight, nine, 1895 came out basically and posted a notice on their office saying that from that day Standard Oil or the SEEP agency on behalf of Standard Oil is no longer going to trade or make transactions uh, via the exchanges and that they would post their own prices rather than use exchange prices and I obviously have the notice in my book I, I'm just paraphrasing it now Essentially, what they're saying, they're saying we are big enough, we're strong enough, we're essentially a, a monopoly that we don't have to take your prices and exchange prices, i.e. third-party independent market prices. We're just going to set the price what we think is, is, is the right price. They, they obviously uh, didn't set them particularly high. And, and one study that I mentioned uh, uh, in my book basically says that they, that was by uh, Brown and Patridge, they say that the prices in that period following that notice might have fallen as 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 much as 40%. Right. So we've got, it's quite interesting, you, you, you described how they sort of just, in a sense, did what Luther did in Wittenberg in the 16th century and nailed his thesis to the door of a church. And here we've got another momentous moment in history where, uh, not, I suppose, an in, a company rather than an individual, but has similarly put a post, I suppose today, they have to do it on a, at a door there or on a, a notice board. Today we do it on social media or somewhere else or send an email, uh, but quite a transformational moment for the industry. It's, it's a huge moment because uh, following the notice very quickly, all the exchanges hold it. Mm. Um, you know, maybe uh, we'll come back to that later on, but you know, St Standard Oil was that big and that dominant, controlled at one stage ninety-five all the ninety-five percent of all the refining in the, in the U.S. 
uh, they were so powerful they could do it. Um, and basically they decided to, they became uh, what we call in economics, uh, a monopsony. They were, they were the, the sole buyer, almost a sole buyer and they're buying at prices uh, at which they would, they, they thought they're right. Mm. But you know, it was it was the, the how do they manage to get that is a really interesting story in itself, and I think that's where Flagler is is forgotten quite a lot. He was an expert on transportation and and railways, and he actually, as as we as I said early on, he founded the Florida East Coast Railway later on, and had a lot of good contacts in those days. I mean, there were actually many ways, David. That period reminds me when I read about it, when I researched it. Remind me so much of 2000, well, that late 90s uh, here, uh, even the period that we've lived through with, um, with the internet companies and simply legislation was trying to catch up with transformational technologies like the railways. And Flagler and, and Rockefeller used railways to, to become uh, a monopoly. And the way they did it was that railways um, uh, were not properly regulated. The reason was that you know, laws and regulations exist at state levels, but obviously railways cross them. So um, it was in many ways, I don't want to go too much into detail if you, you know, it's in the book with some references as well, but it was a wild west. And you could actually, a bigger players could cut deals uh, with railroads. And after agricultural commodities, oil was becoming the, the most important commodity to be transported. Uh, uh, and while some passenger traffic was somehow regulated a little bit, uh, it was this uh, bulk transportation that wasn't. Now, from early days, the first thing that Rockefeller and Flagler did, uh, where they had a partnership, of course, uh, what they decided, they borrowed a lot of money. So they leveraged, uh, seriously leveraged uh, their positions, and it, it handsomely paid off. They also in invested that money very well, very wisely. They actually bought uh, depots, they bought rail tanks, they invested money in, in produ production refining process. And to this day, Exxon, which is the which is what 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 then was standard oil, right? Uh, they boast themselves of being of their excellence in refining. Um, and they are uh, from, from day one, I think Flagler and Rockefeller were had some of the best uh, processes, refineries, and actually investing money into the efficiency of the whole process. Now, transportation was extremely expensive. In many cases, transportation of oil and, and, and product, i.e. kerosene, was half of the, all, all the cost of oil. So they, they, they found, they realized that the way to actually, um, to, to be more competitive than the others was to invest a lot of money into, into railways. But uh, unfortunately, apart from the efficiency, and, and Rockefeller and Flagler were very, very, good managers. Um, as I said, their processes were efficient. And in many, for many reasons, the company would have succeeded anyway uh, because of all that excellence. But uh, Flagler was not uh, a, a straight player either. Um, he was a poker player with something with, with a few cards up, up his sleeves always. So what he did was uh, he would cut these uh, deals with railways in such a way that would cripple his competition. And they were doing that quite blatantly. Um, so railways were given discounts, rebates, and drawbacks. Now, the drawback is probably something not many people have heard of, but drawbacks were, were really, really nasty. Essentially, what a drawback is, you sit down with the um, railway, and you say, okay, you've got to, you give me a discount first relative to my competitor. 
So I'll pay, say, a dollar a barrel, and my competitor will pay $1.50. And I've got the actual numbers in the book, but I'm just now paraphrasing it. Not only that, but I'm so powerful, I'm so important to you, that I want 50 cents from what you charge my competitor to give back to me. <laughs> so those are the drawbacks. So they were basically killing their competition. Uh, at the time, I mentioned the prices collapsed as well. So what happened was that you had excess capacity in refining, then they started, then they came up with something which they called our plan. And our plan was basically to borrow even more money, to um, incorporate the company, and then to start buying, but cleverly, they started buying the biggest competitors first, like uh, Clark Payne and company and some others. So very, very quickly, um, due to their efficiency, uh, due to their, they had their own rail cars, due to these uh, nasty deals with railways, they bought out their competition. And in Cleveland, where they originally their refinery was, within a period of three months, they bought 22 out of 26 refineries. They basically bought everyone, okay? And it, it, they, they, the company was so set up, coming back to your point, David, how it reminds us very much of what, what we have today. At the time, in their heyday, it was, we now have uh, major oil companies have their trading arms like BPOI or Stasco or Shell and so on. Standard Oil had that already, <laughs> you know, um, a, a long, long time ago. They had something called National Transit Company. That company, their job of that company was essentially to monitor the market, to do analysis of supply and demand and then to advise the executive committee, which then issued order whether to buy oil or not at the, at the prevailing prices, at what price, you know, set and when. So um, they essentially were, had a fantastic um, uh, whole setup as a company, uh, but because of that nasty dealing that they did through the railways and, and, and getting rid of a lot of competition, um, I think that the, the sort of trust, later on they incorporated into the trust, the, the, the name trust in the U.S. remains more synonymous with monopoly and uh, abuse of power. That's a good place for us to pause and bring the first part of episode one to a close. In the next part, I'll be asking Adi about how the oil trade grew outside the United States as we continue to explore the history of Brent, the world's most important oil price benchmark. Thank you for listening to The Price of Everything, a new podcast from General Index. To continue listening, click on the link in the show notes for part two right now.